Hello and welcome to our first series of Mastermind with me, Jason Bryan. Five contenders will take up the challenge in this series, all hoping to claim the title of Industry Mastermind and win the coveted Rocco Mastermind Award. To do that, they must answer nine unknown questions on three specialist subjects they choose, providing a pretty eclectic mix of insights for our industry. So let's get on with it and have today's contender. It's with great pleasure that I'm here with Rami Avidan, who is the CEO of Tele2 IoT. How are you doing today, Rami? I'm doing great, thank you. And yourself? Yeah, all is well, all is well. You're a contender in our Mastermind Challenge, and we're very pleased to have you here. Can you tell us a little bit of something about your background? Sure. An entrepreneur, not that I like that uh, sort of concept myself from a naming perspective, but I've started a lot of companies in many different uh, areas, but with a big focus on telecom and IT. I was also one of the founders of Wireless and now one of the two founders of Tele2 IoT, which is basically an IoT company within Tele2, the large telco, predominantly based out of Eurasia. Yeah, we all know Tele2, of course a very important and big group of operators in the world. So it's great to have you here and to get your perspectives on IoT will be particularly interesting. So in the Mastermind Challenge, we have these eight categories, which I'll read them out just for your reference. They are blockchain, they are IoT, roaming, 5G, messaging, eSIM, OTT and chat apps, and we have a mystery category. The three which have been selected by you are eSIM, IoT, and roaming. So, yep. are you ready? Rock and roll. <laughs> okay, then let's start with eSIM. With eSIM, MNOs will have more of a digital sales channel towards their subscribers. And with handsets being available from multiple sources in the near future, even less reason to go into an MNO's store, potentially. When eSIM becomes the industry norm, do MNOs even need to have a retail presence on the high street? So I think there are many different angles here, right? First of all, I don't think that there is a right strategy. The strategy is going to depend very much on the operator and who they are, where they're based, where their strengths and weaknesses lie, right? But if you are historically an incumbent in a rather large market, obviously you have a very large customer base and that customer base does not only rely on uh, coming to you for general connectivity services, they also want you to help them out with, you know, I can't download this app and I can't install it on my phone or whatnot, right? So predominantly the stores of any Large telco today works in two ways. Number one, it's about local brand and marketing. And second of all, it's uh, very much about extending that professional services help to its customer base in that vicinity, right? Now, when it comes to sales, I would argue that uh, the eSIM approach allows operators to take much more of an indirect approach which basically means that they are happy to use other type of go-to-market channels than they've historically done before. You know, a typical example is the Apple eSIM 
that they launched, right? You know, um, I think Microsoft is doing the same on some of their hardware equipment, creating marketplaces and whatnot. So the way I think some operators are going to view this is as a very strong way of being able to take a position in a certain market or in a certain channel structure by using those strong channels in that structure. Some other operators are going to take a different approach being that they are going to want to have not only the contract, but the actual sales and marketing relationship towards their end customers. So I think this is going to depend a lot on the various operators and the markets that they play in and the ability they have to attract a relationship with some of those channels. Does that make sense? It's very well answered. (laughs) Yeah, this is exactly the kind of perspective we're hoping to get. So yeah, yeah, good. Thank you. Obviously, this is a really interesting, evolving area. What do you think are the three greatest challenges you see in the implementation and adoption of eSIM as a standard? I think, first of all, one has to define what eSIM stands for, right? And I think uh, with all of these new technologies, a lot of different people have different viewpoints of what eSIM is, right? So I think clarity on what it is and how it works and the values and the potential obstacles is one of those issues that needs to be resolved right yeah because if you don't really know and understand what it is it's going to be very unlikely that you're going to actually utilize technology so i think that's number one then of course if you understand what it is you will know that it's still very immature meaning that I think one of the biggest obstacles that the industry has is to create standardization in the eSIM world and very much on the hardware related aspects because of course today it doesn't actually comply with most hardwares, right? It's not that easy. And I guess we'll come to that when we talk about the IoT questions later uh, as well. I think standardization is going to be fundamental and interoperability, which I guess is part of that second thing. The third thing that I think is going to be very complex for a lot of players, not only the operators, but all of the players in the eSIM ecosystem, if you may, is going to be a, be to find their position. I mean, what do they do in the world of eSIM? How do they monetize? Because there's one thing of being able to provide a technology and commercially wrap it, but you have to understand how you're going to sell it. Who are you going to sell it to? How do you split up the margins of the eSIM? Because, of course, it's a very convoluted chain of who develops an eSIM and who actually takes it to market and who utilizes it. So I think finding the commercial balance between all of those players involved in how you actually deliver an end-to-end eSIM to a given user is going to be complex and take time to cement. So those would be my top three. Brilliant. Thank you. Thank you very much for your answer. Third and final question on eSIM then. eSIM and IoT really go hand in hand and what in your opinion are then the most influential use cases for eSIM in the IoT space? The most influential use case? Well I think you can skin that cat in many different ways because I think depending on what you define as an eSIM and we haven't done the definition here yet right so Perhaps you should give me your definition of an eSIM first before I answer. Well, we'll just use the very simple terminology embedded SIM. So a SIM functionality which is embedded into the device, not removed, it's there for the lifetime of the device. 
Yeah. And is it a hardware or is it a soft sim? I would think it's hardware. Hardware. Okay. So then let's stay with that definition. So I think what is going to be fundamental here is to understand what use cases this is applicable to. Predominantly, we talk about the actual process of how you build a device in a market, in a factory potentially, and you send it anywhere in the world with the ability to, when it lands in that world, to connect up and adhere to those local regulations and standards in that market without having to go out and source local connectivity to be implemented. So I think the big use case here is in the lifecycle management of these assets. And then, of course, that can be extrapolated onto many different types of actual use cases, you know, maybe a vehicle or a person or a pet or a boat or whatever it might be. But I think the use case is about how you streamline your operations and the lifecycle management of connected assets. Okay. Great. Rami, thank you very much for your answers. I think they were very, very sound answers and uh, I'm sure people will really appreciate your perspectives on that. Let's hope so. Indeed. <laughs> so we'll move on then to IoT, which of course yeah. is your specialist topic. Mm -hmm. um, but let's see how you go with these questions. MNOs play a major role in connectivity for IoT, but what level of responsibility do you think they should have if life-threatening situations arrive due to IoT security failings? I would argue this is more of an ethical and morally sort of geared question because, you know, when you look at any given IoT solution, there are many different aspects that are required to be able to deliver that. And operators typically only control a portion of those chain of events, right? You have a hardware, and on the hardware you have many different components from very often many different suppliers. And of course that then utilizes some sort of bearer service, and sometimes it's the 3GPP standards or any other type of LPWS standards where any MNO could and most likely should be involved, right? Then, of course, you've got the transmission of the data to a some sort of backend cloud that could be either proprietary or public. And then, of course, it's about how the recipient of the data then manages that data internally uh, when they've received it, right? So there is a whole chain of events here. And I think each party that is providing their piece of that puzzle needs to ensure two things. Number one, they need to ensure interoperability with the other parts of the chain that they need to interconnect with. Security very often becomes an issue when there is low level of interoperability. The second thing that I think is highly important is for communication and information by the various parties that are submitting technologies to be used in the transmission and creation of data. Because I think one area that we've been very poor at, generally speaking, not in IoT, but in in general, when it comes to security, is the concept of caveat emptor, you know, that let the buyer beware. I don't think that we necessarily are informative enough on how and what we deliver and how we, how we actually do it from a technical perspective, okay? So I think information is very important. 
And then thirdly, I absolutely think that operators that engage in IoT need to be able to secure their piece of their puzzle, meaning that they need to develop a wide variety of security solutions to go with their offering. To our extent, we bought a security company a while back, you know, to be able to cater to that uh, IoT security company, right? So I think all operators that are serious about the IoT game, they absolutely need to have a security offering in their portfolio that allows their customers to achieve the level of security that they require. And that's going to differ between different customers and different requirements. Excellent. That was a very long and convoluted answer, but I hope you got that. No, it's a very important topic. And yeah, there's a very thorough answer. Thank you for that. Next question is very short, but it's a very a simple one. In the IoT space, what shouldn't be connected and why? <laughs> well, you see, I'm of the opinion that everything that could be connected, as long as somebody wants to connect it, it should be connected. And it should be up to each individual, may it be a consumer or a B2B orientated buyer, should be able to connect up anything that they would like, but it should be on their demand, right? Yeah. Meaning that things shouldn't be connected that they don't want to be connected, right? If you don't want to buy a connected car, you should be able to disable that, should you want that. If you are suffering from heart problems and you have a pacemaker and you don't want the pacemaker to be connected for whatever reason, you should be able to have a pacemaker that is disconnected from the internet. But on the other hand, should you want it to be connected, you should be able to get it connected as well. So I think it's more the decision of what shouldn't be connected should be on an individual person or corporate's, let's call it, demand list. They should be in control. Does that make sense? It does. I guess it's coming from a social perspective in that if everything is connected, is it going to somehow make our lives less interesting? Is it going to challenge basically our freedoms and our ability to enjoy life if everything is connected? It's a different perspective. Well, well I think I think what you may consider liberating, someone else will consider, I don't know the opposite word of liberating, but yeah. incarcerating maybe, yes, exactly. right? And vice versa. So I think it's very much in the eye of the beholder, right? What creates value for you doesn't create value for somebody else and vice versa. So I think it's going to be very complex to say this type of solution or use case should never be connected. I honestly don't see that we are able to come up with that type of framework. Different cultures have different requirements, different organizations have different requirements, different individuals have different requirements. And what I think we do need to do is to create transparency of what is connected already and what is going to be connected and then give choices to the people buying or utilizing those solutions so that they're aware that data is being transmitted of what they do and what they don't do. And they should have an opt-in or an opt-out ability. That I think is fundamental here. Okay, that's a great answer. So final question on IoT, which three industry verticals do you see being impacted the most by IoT and how much effect will IoT have on the number of jobs in these verticals? Mm -hmm. Why don't we start 
if you don't mind, with the job question, because of course I yeah. get this question a lot. Yes. And this whole automation aspect of what IoT brings to the table, doesn't that endanger a lot of jobs? And I think the way one has to look at this is that the world is becoming much smaller and companies who historically used to operate in a given market and being restricted to that because of complexity of delivering solutions in other markets uh, further away from themselves are now giving the ability to extend their demographics by using technology, right? That drives competition because, of course, that means that you will have many more competitors coming into your region and offering solutions to your customers that you've historically focused on. And vice versa, it gives you the opportunity to do the same. But I think then it's about being able to utilize technology to the highest potential for you. And where we believe that IoT creates a huge competitive advantage, of course, is when you use it to increase your customer intimacy, i.e. being able to understand your customer better. And I think going forward, competition is not going to be so much about a core, simply about the core fundamental product and the price point of that product. It's also going to be about how much you know about your customers and how much value you can deliver to your customers by using the data points, right? to cater to the customer's existing and future requirements in a better way. Now, as you do that, of course, you're going to have to fundamentally change the way you operate your business. If you move away from selling products to selling services, you're going to have to upskill your employees. You're going to have to change your employees. You, you know, you are moving into much more of a data-orientated business model very often, I guess, which basically means that you're going to have to look at hiring data scientists, people that mine through petabytes of data to be able to understand the data in a better way. You're going to have to look at how you build your products differently. You're going to have to look at how you sell your products. So my moving away from selling products to selling services will require different types of sales organization. It's going to require different type of marketing organization. So I do believe that it's going to have an impact on people, but it's going to have an impact in the sense that we're going to be, have to be upskilled, side-skilled, I don't necessarily think that technology is going to take over people per se. Yeah. It's going to force people to do other activities that we don't yet potentially know what they are, right? So I think that's the highest level of that. Now, I think there are many areas that are going to be highly affected, but if you look at a macroeconomical level, we know for a fact that we have some very large issues on our planet. Number one, we are a consumption society and we need to move away from that. I'm sure you're familiar with Overshoot Day. The Overshoot Day is the day in the year where we basically consume more of the world's resources than the world can produce on its own right. And every year that is becoming earlier and earlier in the year, which basically tells us that we're consuming much more. So I think industries that consume a lot of the world's resources are going to have to be much smarter about how they do that. A typical example will be the white goods manufacturer, right? Today, they typically build a washing machine to last maybe seven to eight years. But you could actually build a washing machine that lasts maybe 25 or 30 years, right? Using the same raw material. Now, they don't do that because A, they don't have the processes, they don't have the R&D resources to do that maybe yet, but also because they want you to buy a new washing machine. So if they instead would go into a circular business model where they actually maybe sell a service around the original hardware that they produce, they would then of course be able to consume much less resources, but being able to then obtain also higher margin 
by being able to sell it as a service, right? So I think on a high level, it's about that, right? We're also becoming many more people on the planet. We have to be smarter on how we share our wealth on the planet. So you think about, you know, I live in Stockholm. It's an abundance of everything here, from foods to healthcare to information, right? Where there are other parts of the world that don't have the same abundance. And so I think we need to be use technology to be able to have a great impact there. And I think just the notion that you know, less than 50% of the produced tomatoes around the world actually gets eaten, I think is a testament that there is some massive improvements that we need to be able to do here, right? Yeah. We should know that we don't need to send X amount of tomatoes to Sweden. We can send X minus Y, and the Y we can send directly to wherever that needs to go, right? In the world where they don't have the ability to have tomatoes, as an example, right? I'm talking very high level here, but I think agriculture is going to be an area that is going to be affected dramatically. I think healthcare, I think there are areas in the world where you actually have very little to no healthcare. Also, developed countries such as, for example, Sweden, you know, you have very, very long queues to go in for operation. And I think technology will be able to support those type of use cases to improve on healthcare. And then I think you know, going back to the industrial vertical, I think the industrial companies are standing in front of yet another revolution here, the data revolution, and they're going to have to pivot themselves into becoming more of data organizations rather than OEM organizations, if you may. And so I think these three are going to be highly impacted, but there are lots and lots of, of uh, industries that are also going to be impacted. Does that make sense? It does. Very insightful. Thank you. You make some very good points there. So let's go to the final three questions, which are on roaming. Mm -hmm. But they're not too tricky. Don't worry about this. <laughs> they're tough. They're tough questions, but you'll understand the concept. Basically, 4G roaming, as we know it today, has become cheaper because of regulations globally. Obviously, the Rala effect, let's say. But sometimes users are not clear about the quality to expect in a roaming service. Do you see roaming quality of a service as a factor that mobile subscribers take into account when choosing an MNO to get a contract with? Can I answer from an IoT angle here? Does that make sense to you? Of course, yeah, sure. In the IoT world, there is a big difference between IoT users and general telco users, because of course, from an IoT angle, the what the operators deliver to IoT users are very often core functionality of what they deliver. So if you take a taxi company, right? Now, a taxi company today is built up on the ability to be able to receive information of where to go and pick up people and where to drive them, but also to actually being able to get paid for that trip. So if it doesn't work, the core functionality of the taxi company's service that they're trying to sell is impacted very negatively. And so I think IoT buyers have a much higher focus on the quality of service, not only in 4G, but in the services that they buy. And so, for example, that's why we offer very often roaming in any given market, right? So you buy the service from us for, let's say, UK. We typically don't offer it only with one operator. We offer it with multiple operators to be able to cater to a much more overlay of quality of service from different types of operators, right? 
to be able to yeah. extend their footprint. So I think IoT users have a much higher degree of focus on quality when it comes to data connection than the general uh, user of a mobile phone for surfing and emailing. Okay, good. And the next question takes that a little bit further because we know, of course, in recent weeks about the concept of GDPR and other mm. such regulations which are happening in Europe. Should there be a regulation, do you think, on roaming quality, where each mobile network operator must supply a certain level of quality for roaming? Well, I've been advocating SLAs between operators. Mm. Because today, of course, it's on best effort. And I think, again, if I take my IoT hat on, in that environment, best effort is really very often not good enough. Because, of course, the way that this operates is that you have a user of a service that we are either selling through a channel or we're selling direct to a user. And then, of course, we utilize our own infrastructure, but also our partners' infrastructures to be able to deliver that service. And, of course, if you don't have enough insight, but also control of the various pieces of that chain that you're trying to deliver to an end customer, it's going to be very complex for you to deliver a good quality of service solution. So I think, absolutely, I would very much like to see quality as a core driver between operators, whether or not we are going to be able to, in the short term, deliver that as SLAs to customers, I think is doubtful. But a good starting point is to create transparency and control between the different operators that are interacting with each other, I would argue. Very good. Thank you. Final question then, and it's on permanent roaming, and it has an IoT twist to it as well. So, yes, IoT has of course brought the issue of permanent roaming to the table. Devices, uh, let's say, moving to another country and living there permanently roaming, let's say, if they're non-eSIM devices, of course, they don't localize, they're permanently roaming. How prepared and how willing are MMOs, let's say, would you say, to subscribe to permanent roaming today? Is it something... <laughs> is it something that's understood? This is a politically sensitive question you're asking me, but uh, I will try to answer it. I'm sure you can answer uh, it the best with, with eloquence, yeah. I think A is different for different markets, so I think there isn't a standard way of looking at this, generally speaking. If I would be harsh, I would say that the old PTTs are very protective of their markets, meaning that they are not in favor of permanent roaming. And I think uh, this is a very old school way of looking at it personally. I believe in openness, interoperability. I also believe in globality. And so if you're a Volkswagen, for example, and you produce vehicles to be shipped all over the world, Imagine the complexity for Volkswagen to have to engage with interconnects with multiple operators for all of the markets that they are engaging in. Mm. Because they are going to need more than one operator for each and every market. Technically, commercially, operationally, that's, I shouldn't say that it's an impossibility, but it's very, very complex, right? And it becomes very costly to implement that. Now, in a roaming scenario, and yes, that has complexities to it as well, 
but you're dramatically reducing the complexity, the cost and the operational ability for the customers, i.e. the people that are developing these solutions to be shipped around the world. I would also argue that you're making the world, instead of making the world smaller, which we're trying to do with technology and information and data, right? We're actually making the world much larger and more complex by saying to customers that want to deploy on a global scale that you can't. You can't actually build a Volkswagen car in Germany and ship it to Brazil because in Brazil, there is the NRA has said that you, we're not allowing permanent roaming activity here. Yeah. So, of course, creating a complexity between all parties involved that I think is unnecessary. That does not mean that I don't think that local operators in markets should be able to get their fair share of the value that is being created. But that's a different discussion and that can be obtained disregarding how you deploy the solutions. That's more about having intercompany bilateral agreements between various operators around the world. But having a regulators putting the foot down saying you're not allowed to permanently roam in a given market to protect the local business. Personally, I think it's stupidity. Hmm. Okay, Rami, thank you very much. Your insights have been really, really welcome. And uh, I'm sure we're going to have lots of great opinions from people around these topics. So thank you so much for your time. We're done. All no, the no. nine questions have been answered. And yeah, thank you very much for taking part in the Mastermind Challenge. No, it's been my pleasure. Thank you very much and best of luck. And I'm looking forward to hearing the other answers from some of the other contenders. Indeed, indeed. Thank you. Okay. Thank you very much. If you like this Mastermind Challenger, go onto LinkedIn and like the post and tell them what you think in the comments. The winner is the participant with the most likes on LinkedIn. Likes will be calculated two weeks after publication of their podcast. This has been the Mastermind Challenge. We hope you enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to Rocker Radio.